come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 47 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I have another Journey Through the Aughts episode here. It is going to be number number 20 of doing that. And on this episode, though, I will have featured reviews of a British, pretty early hammer horror film of Stop Me Before I Kill, or it also goes under the alternate title of The Full Treatment, which is what the novel was named. And then I also have a review of a movie called Alone that I saw at the Gateway Film Center, and I actually have a very special guest that will be reviewing that film with me, so I would definitely stay tuned to that to hear about who that person is. And then I also will have mini reviews of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake one of, from 2003. I have Wrong Turn, House of a Thousand Corpses, and then another film that I saw at the Gateway Film Center that is an Italian kind of creature feature called Shortcut. And there's actually some interesting information about the written review for that one, so that will be also on you know the mini reviews section for this movie. Aside from that, it's actually been a pretty interesting week for me. I was off of work because I was supposed to be in Portland, like I said on the last episode, so I did have a few days off, so it did allow me to watch a little bit more here. I also have two movies that I watched that are going to not be featured on this. One of them is not a horror movie, but I have something special in store for that one, and then I also have another film that is going to be on the SideQuest podcast with my co-host Jake. So those ones won't be on here because of you know those reasons I just gave there, but I just kind of wanted to fill you in on some of the things going on with me and my time. I'm also gearing up as I know I've been talking about doing the Hooptober movie challenge that I'm actually still working through the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series, so I'm incorporating movies there. But I'm also going to be doing the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror movie challenge for October. So I will be kind of posting some stuff about that i haven't shored up my list there there's a kind of a lot of categories for that one that i need to fulfill but i will kind of be getting stuff on that and you'll be able to find that on letterboxd i think i might do something for that but until i kind of shore up all the details there i don't want to necessarily go too far into you know revealing that information but what i'm going to go ahead and do is i'm going to kick you over to a musical break before i get into those mini reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me
And for my first mini review of this week is going to be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003, the remake. This is directed by Marcus Nispel. This comes from the original screenplay by Kim Hinkle and Toby Hooper, and then also from Scott Kozer wrote the this version of it. This stars Jessica Biel, Jonathan Tucker, and Andrew Barnarski. This is a horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis is, after picking up a traumatized young hitchhiker, five friends find themselves stalked and hunted by a deformed chainsaw-wielding loon and his family of equally psychopathic killers. Now, this is a movie that I remember when it was hitting the theaters. I was really excited as my mother had showed me the original and it terrified me. The first time I saw this, I tried to sneak in and it didn't work out because I wasn't 17 yet. And it took me another time going to the theater to finally, you know, get a chance to see it on the big screen. At the time of its release, I really liked it and it picked this up on DVD some time ago. Now, it had been one that I'd seen quite a few times. I think I saw it at least twice in theaters as well as... A couple times once I picked up the DVD, but it had been a while since I had watched it and never with a critical eye. And I got the chance now as this is part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, just to kind of fill in just a little bit more background information, we start this movie off with police footage and learning about a horrific attack that happened on a group of young adults. And this is a period piece. This does take place right around the time of the original one did. So like 1973 is where we're at. Now we are following a group that are in a van that is drove by Kemper, who also owns it, and that's Eric Belfour. With him is his girlfriend of Aaron, who is Jessica Beal. She wants him to propose. He hasn't yet, and it is starting to wear on her. Now, they have a friend of Morgan, who is Jonathan Tucker, as well as Andy, who is Mike Vogel. And then they also have picked up a hitchhiker along the way of Pepper, who is Erica Leershin. Now, Andy and Pepper are pretty hot and heavy for each other, even though they've just met. Now, things get a little bit heated when Aaron learns that their recent journey into Mexico was to buy marijuana, and she's not happy to learn this. Now, things take all a dark turn here, where they pick up a teenage hitchhiker of Laura German, is the actress that portrays her. Now, she ends up shooting herself in their van and kills herself, you know, doing so. The group is trying to decide what they should do. Should they just leave the body somewhere, or should they flee? So they end up going to a roadside gas station that's also a barbecue, where they meet a Luda May, who is Marietta Marich. And she tells them, when she calls the sheriff, to go to the old mill that is nearby. The group is annoyed, but does what is asked. The problem is when they get there, the sheriff isn't there, and it takes some time for him to finally do. Now, in between him not showing up and everything like that, the crew ends up going over to... A nearby house and this is where they meet a old man by the name of old monty who is terrence evans and a much more terrifying member of his family of leatherface who is barnarski in this movie now i'm assuming most people have either seen the original one or this one i i'm gonna leave my recap where i have there and what i really kind of want to do is i don't want to do too much of a kind of compare to the original or the remake but I'm glad this isn't necessarily a shot-for-shot one. I like that this one does a few different things, like the reason why the group is out here. And you know, have them having drugs kind of makes it a little bit where they're nervous, so involving the police is something that they're a little bit hesitant to do. I like that we have the hitchhiker, but they have a tweak that it's you know a female here, and then the wo- weapon that they are carrying. I like that we also get kind of the same type of thing with the family, but they have some different things going on here. And we're still having that dread, though, knowing that pretty much everybody in this group or everybody that they meet here, these backwoods people, all probably are, you know, know each other and could all have a hand in everything like that. 
even though the characters themselves in the movie don't necessarily always know that, I do like that they kind of introduce that type of thing. But one thing I really like this movie does is that it takes the original, which is more of an exploitation film, and makes it into a slasher film here. I think that all the characters, though, are likable to an extent. Aaron is trying to do what is right morally, and Pepper falls in line with that as well. But of course, you know, being in a horror movie situation like they are, it's not the best thing to do, and it's actually kind of the wrong thing. Kemper is torn on what he should do, and really just has the best intentions and everything he decides. He does mean to marry Aaron, and I love this movie is a bit more mean-spirited than the original, and that we get to see he has a ring, but she never gets to see that. So it's just something that we get introduced to, and it kind of makes you kind of groan and feel bad for everything that's going down there. Morgan doesn't want to get into trouble, but he just makes some bad decisions. Same could be said for Andy. There's just a cast here that we get to know them and like them, like I said, well enough before bad things start to happen here. And I'm going to shift this over to the acting here. It's crazy to see Beale in a movie like this, seeing where she ended up now. But she's really good. I also like Tucker, Learshin, Vogel, and Belfour as well. There's a bit of contention here for Barnarski in this movie. And taking on the role is there were some pretty inappropriate things that were said that were out of line. I don't want to pick too much into that, but I think his imposing size is good. He doesn't bring a whole lot to the role aside from that, so that's why some of his comments don't really sit well. I love seeing R. Lee Ermey in this movie. He's great as this ruthless sheriff that we have because he is another part that brings a lot of the mean-spiritedness to here. The rest of the family is fine, but they don't really necessarily add a whole lot, to be honest. And as I was saying, I like that they slip, shift this over into being a slasher film. Now, many of the deaths are done off screen, and I'm assuming this is to ensure that they would get that R rating so it could hit the theaters. But they don't really go as heavy CGI as I was expecting, and I would say that the blood and gore that we do get in the movie is solid. There's just a few times where I think they should have went a little heavier there for the realism. And now, this is Platinum Dune, so like obviously you know they have their issues. I do like the rule setting and them being isolated. It does look very hot and gritty as everybody's all sweaty and everything, and things just get a little bit nasty because of that. I know Duncan and the crew brought up the amount of water that's in the basement slash like Leatherface's workshop. It's never bothered me until this viewing. I know it's there just to make everything a little bit grosser. I don't really mind it. I don't think it ruins anything, but it is something that feels like a little bit of movie convenience. The cinematography, though, I thought was pretty well done for everything that I've laid out there. So that's all I really wanted to delve into for this movie. I still have a soft spot for it. I don't think it nearly comes close to what the original one did. I just think it's a good sl like slasher film that you know makes Leatherface kind of more into that slasher villain than we got in the original movie. Not to say that this is the first one that does that, but I just having just watched that, I can see you know kind of the spirit they're going for there. The effects are good enough. They're not as violent as I remember. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out. I don't mind the beginning kind of thing trying to make this out to be a real case i think it's kind of a fun thing and i do know some people back in the day got confused thinking that this was based on a real case and not you know kind of basing it off of ed gein or anything like that this like i said solid movie in my opinion i know not everybody likes it but i came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie i'll probably never be able to go higher than that but like i said that's where it falls with me at this time then i have for you wrong turn from 2003 this is directed by rob schmidt written by alan b McElroy. This stars Eliza Dushku, Jeremy Sisto, and Emmanuel Chikri. This is a horror thriller from a co-production of the United States, Germany, and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Chris and a group of five friends are left stranded deep in the middle of the woods after their cars collide. As they venture deeper into the woods, they face an uncertain and blood-curdling fate. 
Now, this is a movie that I have a lot of time for. The first time I saw it was due to my sister getting the DVD. Now, we both liked Eliza Dushku from Bring It On, and we also knew Jeremy Sisto from Clueless, and the other cast members being in some other things that we had seen, including, like, Kevin Zegers and Lindy Booth being in the Dawn of the Dead remake. This is also an interesting one on top of that cast for the fact that we have family from West Virginia. As this is where this is supposed to be taking place, and you know, we also like horror films. Now, I have finally given this a critical watch with the podcast Under the Stairs for its Summer Challengers of the 2000s. I'm trying to watch all the same movies. Now, we get some newspaper headings that are saying that there could be this mountain man legend where they're supposed to be like super strong and they think this is due to inbreeding, which causes them to have madness as well as, I mean, just kind of birth defects that come along with it. Now, is this something that could necessarily happen, though? I do kind of think that there is a little bit of that. Just because there could be these people that are isolated enough where they could be kind of, you know, intermingling like that and everything. But do I honestly think there's something like this out there? No, but I could see, like I said, and there's also the bit of madness and entitlement that comes with living off of the land and then having people infringe on your area. Now, we really kind of follow Chris Flynn, who is portrayed by Desmond Harrington. Now, he ends up trying to find a way to get to Raleigh as fast as he can, but when there is a backup on the road, he ends up taking another kind of side road that he believes will take him out to the highway past everything there but the interesting thing there is he ends up crashing when he's not paying attention into another vehicle now this belongs to the character of francine who is portrayed by lindy booth it belongs to her mother but then also with her is like jesse who is dushku there's carly who is chikri there is jeremy sisto who is scott and then there's kevin Zegers who is evan now they end up splitting up and they end up starting to be attacked by these people who are living in the woods. And we see this isn't the first time they d have done this where they are having a bunch of like items they've taken as well as, you know, a bunch of cars that are kind of parked out in kind of a opening, like a clearing that is in the woods and everything. And this kind of has a big feel of borrowing heavily from The Hills Have Eyes. Now I'll be honest, as I know this isn't the best movie, but I have a lot of fun with it. It isn't really one that does anything that is new for the slasher genre. This isn't the first time that we've seen somebody who is, you know, mentally handicapped as being kind of the killers. Because, I mean, Jason Voorhees, although not inbred, you know, is having Down syndrome. I wouldn't necessarily say that this crew is handicapped, though, like the, the villains here. But I do like that we have some pretty funny names, but they do have superhuman strength as well. Is We have Three Finger, who is Julian Richings. We have Sawtooth, who is Gary Robbins. And then One Eye, who is Ted Clark. Now, something that really works for me is that I like the characters here. This group of friends is truly caring for Jessie, who has, like, her boyfriend has just broken up with her. Carly has rounded up all their friends to help to get her mind off of it. Now, Francine doesn't seem to really want to be there, and the same could be said for her boyfriend of Evan, but they still, you know, allowed her to take her mother's vehicle to get them out there. This is one that's a little bit, the weakest for me is Chris. My issue with him is that, is that Harrington is just kind of a bland actor and doesn't add a whole lot. I will say that the acting is pretty good across the board aside from him. Dushku, I like... I mean, she's quite attractive, and I think she does well as this person who likes to go camping, so we're establishing that part of her character. Chikri is another one who's more of a city girl, but will do whatever she can to cheer up her friend. She does get a bit whiny, but I think we kind of need a little bit of that. Sisto is a bit of a hippie. Zegers is just a douche, and Booth is a little bit freaky. But like I said, I think that we get to know enough about each of these characters, and I think they work in those archetypes. 
The villains are also good. I think the makeup they have is solid, and I was glad to see Stan Winston's name in the credits. And then before going you know, too deep there, Richings is one of my favorite character actors from this era as well. And then since I brought up Winston, I really want to go into his effects. For the most part, the look of the hillbillies is really good. I think they went practical there, and then we also get some dead bodies that look pretty realistic as well. The blood does on top of that. If I do have any issues, there's a scene with the watchtower where they're climbing up and they use green screen and it's pretty obvious. I mean, aside from that, I don't really have a whole lot of issues, so it does kind of work out there. But like I said, this is really just a fun slasher film. It has a little bit of a mean spirit without going too far. I like the group of characters and I would say that the acting is solid overall. I like the look of the characters and the setting really adds an element as well. The practical effects are good thanks to Winston and his crew. My really only glaring issue is that one thing that I brought up, but this is really just more of a popcorn film that I could throw on and enjoy, knowing that it isn't great. And my rating here is a 6.5 out of 10. And then I watched House of a Thousand Corpses from 2003. This is written and directed by Rob Zombie. It stars Sid Haig, Karen Black, and Bill Mosley. This is a horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being two young couples traveling across the backwoods of Texas searching for urban legends of murder end up as prisoners of a bizarre and sadistic backwater family of serial killers. Now this film, I actually didn't really care for the first time that I saw it. I was a bigger fan of the sequel, The Devil's Rejects, and I'll admit, I'd only seen this film once, and that was in the theater with my family. Now I did give it a second viewing at the Gateway Film Center when they were showing it for its 15 year anniversary. So I decided to check it out and you know give it another chance. And then I also have now done a third viewing as part of the Summer Challenge series from the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s, which is why it's here. And then just to kind of delve into a little bit more of the people here is we have Denise Willis, who is Aaron Daniels, with her boyfriend Jerry Goldsmith, who is Chris Hardwick. Then we have Mary Knowles, who is Jennifer Jostin, and her boyfriend of Bill Hudley, who is Rain Wilson. Now these are the ones that are going around looking for these like roadside attractions and stuff. Now they end up at Captain Spaulding's, who is Sid Hag, and he has a museum of mystery and the strange and murder. Now there's actually a dark ride where they end up learning about a serial killer named Dr. Satan. Jerry really wants to go to this tree that they learn about there where he was hung from and thinks it would add to their book. And on their way to try to find it, they end up meeting Baby Firefly, who is Sherry Moon Zombie. She says that she knows where it's at, so she decides to take them there because it's right near where she lives. And this is when her brother Rufus, who is Robert Allen Mooks, shoots out their tire with a shotgun and then... They end up getting sucked into a night of depravity as they also get to meet the other members of the family and including Otis, who is Bill Mosley. Now my views in this film have definitely come up after that first viewing. I wasn't really used to the more art house style horror films that I am now a fan of. Now I don't necessarily consider this to be art house, but we do have some interesting editing and it's quite stylized. It is a lot like watching a Rob Zombie music video. There is you know, lower quality home video footage that is interspersed in the movie. And after this last viewing, I didn't mind it at times. It really makes for a more surreal look at this family and getting a little bit more to know some of the characters that we don't necessarily get. But I also think that the attacks on people during this time give it a more grindhouse feel where it makes it feel even more real for me because of it. And then the film does get a little bit boring for me though during the day when the father of Don, who is a former police officer and he is with a couple other cops, goes searching to find his daughter. I just feel like it kind of loses some tension there, and I think cutting away to some of these other things does that as well. 
Now, something I have noticed is that Rob Zombie is really wearing his heart on his sleeve for this movie. I've heard that he loves the Universal Horror Films, which makes sense that we are seeing a horror host like they get back in the day that would host, you know, horror movie marathons where they would show those type of films. This really is also paying homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with what we're getting with some of the exploitation horror films, you know, mixed in. And that does work for me. And I also get vibes of The Hills Have Eyes on top of that. Now, the acting in the film I thought was good. I do have to give it to Zombie that he went out and got people that were underrated or were popular back in the day. Hag is wonderful and gritty in his role. He's hilarious and dirty, but I could literally see him running the attraction that he does and, you know, RIP to Hag. Black was solid as the mother of the family. She doesn't really add a whole lot for me, though. Daniels, Justin, Hartwick, and Wilson were also good. We also get to see the fear and the uneasiness about their predicament that has them in. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that the women would fight back like they do, though, especially earlier on. Mosley, Sherry Moon Zombie, and the rest of the Firefly family were good. It's also fun to see Tom Towles and Walter Goggins in this film as the police officers, as they're both solid kind of character actors that I've seen in quite a few things. As for the effects, they were all done practically and looked amazing. The blood looks real, and we get some damage that is done to the characters, but it is edited in a way where they cut away to make it feel worse, which that's a lot of kind of what you got in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The look of the characters that they're tortured and beaten looks great. I thought the look of Otis was great too. He looks to be albino, but he's so dirty that it's kind of hard to tell. And then also this film is shot very well. I like the camera angles and the gritty feel to it. It definitely gives it a more real kind of exploitation film. Now, this last viewing, there were a few times that I think he's cut to some things that do just bog it down ever so slightly for me. And the other thing is that I love the score to this movie. We get an odd mix of metal with oldies. The film actually takes place in the 1970s, so it incorporates music from the era, which I do like that. And I think that it actually adds to the tension as cheery songs being played over people being tortured. And it gives it such an odd duality to it. Now, metal also just fits in with this genre as well. And that's just one of the stronger parts of the film, if you ask me. So, like I said, I do like this film. I'm not as high as some people are on it. I prefer some of his other films over this, especially the sequel here. But I still come in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And the next one I have is Shortcut from 2020. This is directed by Alessio Ligori. And is written by Daniela Corsi. This stars Jack Kane, Andre Claude, and Zach Sutcliffe. This is actually a adventure fantasy horror film from Italy. But interesting enough, it is in English language. And this is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being... A group of five classmates are trapped inside their school bus after a mysterious creature invades the road. Time runs, and every passing minute decreases their survival chances against the constant threats of that unknown entity. Now, I do think that synopsis is a little bit misleading, but this is a movie that I only heard about when Jamie and I went to the Gateway Film Center to blindly see a movie, and this trailer played. I did my best not to watch it, but I could see that the creature feature in the premise caught my interest. Now, the following weekend, I caught this, and you know, it gives me another 2020 watch, and I'm going to have a more in-depth written review on the Dark Discussions website, so keep an eye out for that, as that is going to be the first article that I have written for them. Now, just to kind of give you just a little bit more information, I don't really know if they're going to school, because I don't ever think that's fleshed out, but the bus is driven by Joseph, who is Terrence Anderson, and I should point out that it's a Fiat bus. 
Now, there are a bunch of kids on it where we have Nolan, who is Jack Kane. He seems to have a crush on the girl who is sitting across from him of Bess, and her name is Sophie Jane Oliver. She is keeping to herself most of this opening sequence, and it seems like Joseph is afraid to talk to her. There's a heavier kid who's constantly making jokes named Carl, and he's portrayed by Xander Mlano. And then sitting with him is a smart kid of Queenie, who is Molly Dew. And then sitting in the far back, away from everyone else, is Reggie, who is Sutcliffe. Now, he's wearing a leather jacket and has a punk haircut with piercings. Despite the standoffish attitude he's given off, he does seem to get along with everybody well enough. And then kind of the whole crux of this is the bus ends up coming to some trees that are blocking the road. So they take another path, which is what the shortcut that they're talking about. Then they end up coming on a dead deer in the road, and when Joseph goes to move it, a character of Pedro Michela, who is David Keyes, now he holds Joseph at gunpoint and makes him get back on the bus. He forces them to continue on, but everything takes a turn when they get inside of a tunnel, and the bus ends up just shutting off, and then the power ends up going out shortly after, and they realize they're being stalked by a creature outside. We end up seeing that there's a sign for a military base nearby, and we end up seeing that there's a stone catacomb where they end up learning a little bit more about this creature that is known as the Night Wanderer, and he's portrayed by Matteo Di Gregori. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap. This feels a lot like Jeepers Creepers 2 in that, for a stretch here, we're trapped on this bus with a creature stalking them outside. The movie does a really good job, in my opinion, of setting everything up. We get a short cold open, we get to know these characters a bit before we're getting them trapped, and it even introduces some cool things to talk about an upcoming lunar eclipse and how man kind of does a lot of things in conjunction with the moon. Where I think the movie struggles, though, is that despite all that it introduces, it doesn't go far enough with anything there. We learn, you know, that the lunar eclipse happens every 20 years. We learn from some of the things that there's a diary being kept by a guy who is obsessed with what he dubbed the Night Wanderer. And then that gave me more of the Jeepers Creepers vibes that it hunts periodically. And then you also have somebody who is obsessed with it. This never goes anywhere aside from this, though. I'll get more into the creature here in a second, but before moving on to that, the movie gives us about the depravity of this Pedro character, but this doesn't go anywhere. It has introduced some things through, like, flashbacks and then some dream sequences, but that just kind of feels like filler to me. But to get back onto some positives would be the look of the creature. Early on, we get glimpses, and then that is mostly hidden by shadows. I was starting to think that we weren't going to get any of that, but then the movie decides to let us see it. This is not a misstep at all. The creature is practical and looks amazing. It has some razor sharp fangs and is just creepy in general. We also get the idea that it has the ability to affect things like running on electricity. And I will give them credit to the rest of the effects, you know, being good in that regard as well. The problem that comes from this though is the movie doesn't necessarily know what it wants to be. What I mean here is that there isn't enough action with the creature constantly menacing them. And then, I mean, it does attack periodically, but then we don't get enough research to learn about the creature but we get these lulls where you're going to try to introduce things. I think not knowing what it necessarily wants to be makes it boring. And some examples that I'll give off here is that it is introduced that the creature lives off of blood and fluids like a vampire or a leech. Then someone states that it's like a parasite. This is the end of that. And I don't necessarily need everything fleshed out. I just need a bit more action or a bit more research for me to fully be invested. And then I would say that the acting is okay. I don't think it's necessarily any of the performances that were bad. They all portray their character archetypes well enough. Kane is our hero, but he's shy to start with, so we see that he needs to, you know, find that confidence. Sutcliffe is that punk who is rough around the edges. I just think he's too friendly in the beginning enough for that to fully work. And Lano is more of the comedic value, but I don't think he does enough there, to be honest. 
Oliver is poorly written, though, in my opinion. She's the love of our lead, but she never really is in peril from what I remember. The same for Do, in that she's supposed to be our intelligent character, but I don't ever remember her doing any sort of research or kind of correcting people, and I think that's a misstep if you're going to have these type of characters. Keys is interesting backstory, but that just goes nowhere. Anderson is fine, and the rest of the cast is okay. I just don't think they're really written in a way to help anything, you know, build in my opinion. I will give credit, though, that I think the setting is great. I love that they're, I don't know why or where they're traveling to, but I, and I mean, they're not like bad kids, so I don't feel like they're going to like a special school to kind of reform them. I do like what they do, though, to get them out in the middle of nowhere. It is creepy, and I think that I really enjoy how it gives that contained feel as well. And the soundtrack is really well done also. It helps to build tension and fits for what was needed. I just think there's so many things that are kind of introduced and there's some good concepts they're playing here. They just don't lean into enough of it and don't give us enough one way or the other. So that's where I feel like the script just doesn't necessarily know what it ends up wanting to be. So like technically this is a good movie in my opinion. There's just some issues though that really force the score down and they're just missteps in my opinion. So I'm still going to rate this just over average, like literally just over it as a 5.5 out of 10. And if you want to see more of my thoughts on this movie, I would recommend going over to the Dark Discussions website and read the full written review that will be posted over there. I will definitely be fleshing out some of the things that I've introduced here and give a little bit more in-depth thoughts on that. And that's all I have for mini reviews for you this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. The doctor who knows the warning. The French bride who fears the warning. Her lover who reveals the warning. Go on, take deep breaths and keep talking. Oh, I, I can't breathe. Take me out. Well, I'll try to kill her For the first time, the picture lays bare the mind of a man. For the first time, a subconscious obsession becomes a reality. Stop lying, Colby. Stop lying to yourself. When do you feel you most want to kill her? After... After we... Stop running away. What do you do with the stretcher? I put it round her neck and Go then... Go on. Pull it tight. I couldn't hear. Pull it tight! Suspense that is real and daring. A mature drama. Intimate. Penetrating. What's he like as a husband? According to you, murder. Is it different since the accident? Naturally, it's different. I mean, as a lover. Tell me, Denise, is he rougher? No. featured review on this episode i have my 1960s film which is stop me before i kill or it goes by the original title of the full treatment now this is directed by val guest 
who also co-wrote the screenplay with Ronald Scott Thorne. And Ronald Scott Thorne also wrote the novel here. This stars Claude Dauphin, Diane Salento, and Ronald Lewis. Also joining them is Francosi Rose, probably said that wrong, Bernard Braden, Katia Douglas, Barbara Chilcott, and Tyrard, Edwin Stiles, and George Merritt. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after surviving a traumatic car accident, a race car driver travels to the Côte d'Azur to recover but is plagued by an urge to strangle his wife. Now this is another movie that I had never heard of until I was looking for, you know, films from 1960. I was trying to find one that I was going to pair with this movie that you'll hear after this from 2020. And this one seemed pretty interesting, and especially for the fact that it is an early Hammer horror film. As I do like those, so when I saw that that would fall into this, and that the stories were not necessarily the same thing, but I could work with it and pair it up enough for the movie alone that you'll hear after this review. But then before I kind of delve into the movie itself, let me give you some of the major players and some of their backstory. Val Guest was a name that I recognized, but I wasn't sure from when or where. It clicked though looking at his directed films, which he had 56 of. Earlier this year, I saw the Quatermass Experiment for the movie club challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs. And he also did a follow-up of Quatermass 2. He did the Abominable Snowman in this movie. These were all the ones that he did in the horror genre. And I also have seen the Casino Royale from 1967, where he did direct part of that, as there was a, an ensemble directing cast there. Now, as a writer, he wrote all of the movies that he directed, except he's uncredited for The Abominable Snowman. So I'm wondering if something there was that he just did a little bit of the rewrites, not necessarily the full screenplay. I have not seen that one yet, so I'm not positive. He also did the dialogue for another film called The Ghost Train from 1941. And he also helped with the dialogue on Casino Royale. Now, Ronald Scott Thorne, who also wrote the novel, you know, co-wrote the screenplay, as I said. He only has five other credits, but this is the only one in the horror genre. The star of Claude Dauphin had a pretty long career with 139 acting credits. In the genre, before this movie, he was in The Phantom of the Rue Morgue. He also co-hosted an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And then the last movie that he did in the genre was Expulsion of the Devil from 1973. Now, I also saw him in a movie called Bon Voyage, which is a Hitchcock film, so it kind of is interesting that he, you know, was in that movie and then also co-hosted an episode with him. This is Diane Salento's first film in the genre. She appeared in two television shows in the genre of thriller and the late-night horror before being in the role that I knew her from as she is Miss Rose in The Wicker Man. Of course, that would be the original one, not the remake. Then we have Ronald Lewis. This was his first foray into the genre, where he followed it up the next year with Scream of Fear and Mr. Sardonicus. Now, I've never seen either of those ones, but I believe they could be Hammer films. If I'm wrong there, I do apologize, because I didn't really look into it, but those names sound familiar. And then after that, he did a couple of episodes of Out of the Unknown, and then one episode of Tales of Unease. Now, to get into this movie here, we start this off with some upbeat jazz music, and it is coupled with the reality of a horrible situation. There's been a car accident. Denise Colby, who is Salento, was thrown from the car, but she is fine aside from just being dizzy. Now, her husband was driving, and we see that from an oil tanker that is pulled off to help, he is a famous race car driver. His name is Alan, and he's portrayed by Lewis. 
this was their wedding day, and they were going off on their honeymoon before this accident happened. The movie then shifts us over to an interesting scene where a doctor and insurance guy are talking about the events. It appears that Alan has been cleared of all wrongdoing as the truck driver was on the wrong side of the road. He passed away, and they're basing mostly off of the evidence of the crime scene and Denise's testimony. So it appears that the truck driver died from everything that is stated here, and we learn this much later on. You know, it's confirmed much later on, that is. But so Alan is cleared and once he you know gets right over the accident itself and the kind of trauma that he's dealing with from it that the team believes that he is you know after his honeymoon in cans will clear his head and will be able to get behind the wheel again is the roundabout way of what i was trying to say there we then see the effects of this accident though it have on him he isn't able to drive currently like physically he can but emotionally he is shaken and he's pretty terrified and it's pretty pronounced fear as well now, Denise is with him to encourage him to get over this fear. Now, at this first moment that we get to really see him doing this, he's only able to drive three kilometers before needing to pull off and for her to take over. She is trying to keep him from overdoing it. And we also see another side effect of the accident. Alan is violent as he is kissing his wife and he chokes her, I mean, hard enough to lead bruises. Now, I will say there seems to be a moment where she's kind of enjoying it, but he takes it a little bit too far, and that's where everything kind of gets shut down, and it's more of him kind of being scared. I mean, she does kind of call out a little bit, but we see, though, that it really bothers him what he's doing. Alan isn't one to take it easy, though. He rides a lift from the hotel that they're staying in to the beach and then back up again. When he arrives, though, his wife is chatting with a David Prod, and this is Dolphin. Alan is prone to violent outbursts, and he isn't fond of David in this initial interaction. It is interesting, though, is that David finds his behavior to be refreshingly rude and invites the two over for a dinner party that night. They immediately decline, but David states that it's an open invitation and that if they change their mind, they're more than welcome to join. And then back in the hotel room, Alan feels remorse for how he treated David and likes that he challenges him. It is then that he decides that they're going to go to this dinner party for at least a little bit, now, Alan is worried about the bruises that are on his wife's neck, so he does ask her to wear something where she can wear a scarf. Now, much to Alan's surprise, when they arrive at the dinner party, his friend Harry, who is Bernard Braden, is also in attendance. Things take a turn, though, when Alan once again gets agitated, he drives off into the night. We get to see that he's able to overcome the issue, and because he's never actually drove at night. He's really only done the three kilometers during the day. But we see, though, that... He got over that pretty quickly in driving over to Harry's uh, hotel room, but he is still harboring the fear of hurting Denise. She learns that David is actually a psychiatrist after they chat once the dinner party gets broken up, and he really wants to help Alan. He isn't having it at first, though, once Denise relays what, you know, Al what David wants to do, but when they return to London, he relents. There are some odd methods of treatment being used, and the side effects might not be what Alan expects as well. Now that's where I want to leave my recap for this movie. I was actually intrigued that this movie isn't talked about more, especially because of the concepts and aspects. I do think that some of the science behind some of the things isn't necessarily scientifically accurate. I'm able to suspend disbelief though since the movie did come out in 1960 and I mean we used to do lobotomies and things like that so is it out of the realm of possibility some of these things? Not at all to me. The first thing I want to delve into though is the character of Alan. He's a famous race car driver, but then he gets in this accident that has broken his psyche. What is interesting though for this is that he's blocked out the memory of what happened at the time of the accident. He just knows that he was driving and what his wife has relayed to him. At first, which I went over is that he's nervous to drive, the other effect of his traumatic event 
is that he wants to strangle his wife. Part of this is when he goes into a rage. What I like is what ends up being revealed, though, as to why he has this obsession. Now, I will say, like, once I start to delve into this, I'm surprised that David didn't pick up on it a little bit earlier because the moment that I first kind of start hearing what they're referring to, I was like, oh, so that's why he wants to strangle her. And then why the weapon that he kind of picks out in their apartment that he wants to use but I mean, I'm assuming some of this might be just the movie trying to kind of prolong some of the things and not necessarily reveal it too quickly. But I just think that a movie like this might not necessarily work for a more modern audience who's a little bit more intelligent with some of these things as well. Now, Alan seems like a good guy, but the real saint here is his wife of Denise. She is willing to do whatever it takes to help him. There does seem to be a bit more behind this as her brother was also a famous race car driver and he died, I believe, on a crash on the course. From what I gathered, she met Alan the same day as this traumatic event. Now, I almost wonder if there's a little bit of her making up for losing her brother by clinging on to him. And it's also interesting, though, is that Alan is very convinced that she's going to leave him because they're unable to get intimate currently. But it seems like there's no indication that she's ever given him that she would leave for that. And she constantly is telling him this. But for whatever reason, his mentally, and I'm wondering how much of this is 1960s that he's not able to perform as a man, that he has lost confidence in himself there. But that's just some things that I'm kind of looking at, you know, from a more modern perspective. Now, she does end up befriending David Prod, And she believes him when he tells her that he can help her husband. This is interesting here is that Alan doesn't want his help, but I'm not surprised. Another thing looking at it from, you know, today's eyes is that people don't necessarily like to seek help for their mental problems, especially men. Now take this 60 years ago, I bet it's even worse since I, you know, living currently, I can see it. Now Prod does seem like a good guy, but about halfway through the movie, I started to question his motives. He seems like a good guy with good intentions, but there's just something about him that I felt was off. I do wonder if some of the methods that he uses were real for the time period or not. It does seem plausible, but I haven't done the research to confirm it. And I don't really necessarily want to spoil anything with this movie or where anything will end up as well. Now, what really helps this movie, though, was the acting. I've delved into the characters themselves, but the actors behind the performances really bring them to life. Dauphin really does seem like a doctor. I like that we aren't introduced to that until a bit after we've met him. He just at first seems like a bit eccentric older man who likes interesting people being around him. The more that you get to know him though, the less I trust him. Salento is such a sweetheart and takes on this role so well. I love her accent and everything that she is doing to try to help her husband. Lewis is probably the best performance though. He does annoy me sometimes, but I think a lot of that is just how well he's playing it. He brings arrogance of being this famous driver, but I also like that because he's broken at the moment, that he kind of doesn't necessarily feel as confident as he should be, and the fits of rage feel authentic to somebody in his position. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed in my opinion. Now there really isn't a whole lot else to delve into this movie. There aren't a lot in the way of effects and it isn't that type of movie. The cinematography is solid. There are some interesting camera angles and some of the effects that they use as well. The only other thing is that the soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out, but I like that the jazz music that we were using in the opening sequence, it sets the tone of how horrible that crash really is and how upbeat the music it is. So you get an interesting little like duality there and I like what they were working with. Now, before I close this out, I do have a little bit of trivia, is that Sean Connery visited the set during the filming in the south of France. He was dating Diane Salento at the time, and it's also interesting that he is, you know, the original James Bond, and that guest directed Casino Royale, shot on location in London and the French Riviera. 
Although the BBFC website shows that this is having been 120 minutes, the review in the monthly film bulletin of March 1961 states 109 minutes, which ties in with the advertised program times from February 1961 UK release on the ABC circuit. The Colby's car is a 1960 Jaguar XK150 drophead coupe, or maybe I said just said Jaguar from where this is coming from. At 120 minutes, the full treatment was Hammer's longest film to date. That's all the trivia that I had for it. So now with that said, this was a good movie and one that I think is underseen. There are some really interesting aspects of the movie with looking at mental health. The movie does have a reveal that I saw coming part of the way through, but it doesn't hurt anything there. And I do think that they kind of flesh it out a little bit more than I was expecting. The acting of this really does help carry for what was going on and what they needed. It never gets boring, which is good. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them. They did some interesting things with camera angles and effects with the soundtrack. You know, it ends up being fitting for what was needed. I would rate this as an above average movie that's just borderline on being good. Like, I do think this is a little bit of a hidden gem, but not necessarily one that I would kind of put in that whole, like, classic category. So my rating here is a 7.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review, which will also have a very special guest. I'm sorry. I, I've got to go. It's I'm just gonna take I've a minute. Go. I'm late for a meeting. I'm sorry. I just. Hey, I... Nine one one. What's your emergency? I think I'm being followed. I know you're close. Are you scared? second review here i have alone from 2020 this is directed by john himes and written by matthias olsen the stars jules wilcox mark manchaka and anthony held and this also has jonathan rosenthal laura duan nico floresca max huskin shelly lipkin Bretton montgomery betty moyer katie o'grady and emily schaller this is technically listed as a thriller, but on I am or on Letterbox, it is listed as a horror film as well. 
This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a recently widowed traveler is kidnapped by a cold-blooded killer, only to escape into the wilderness where she's forced to battle against the elements as her pursuer closes in on her. Now, this is a movie that I was looking for a featured review here on the podcast, and when I saw this was playing at the Gateway Film Center, I checked up on it and confirmed through Letterboxd that it was horror, as I was saying. From what I read, it fit the bill as well, so Jamie and I decided to give this a viewing that night. And then just to give a little bit more background information, the director of John Himes has done a few t- TV show episodes in the genre, but the only other horror film would be Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which I didn't even know was horror. And then Olsen only has four credits for writing, and this is the first in the genre. The actress of Wilcox was in another horror film this year that was featured on this podcast of Dreamcatcher. And she was also in Styra from 2014 in Paraphobia in the year previous, two movies I've never heard of. And then Menchaca is someone that I knew looked familiar since he was in the Stephen King adaptation of The Outsider. Other than that, I've seen him in Homeland as Lauder Wakefield. And in genre, he's only been in an episode of Sleepy Hollow and a short. And then finally, there is Anthony Held. And he was in Deep Rising, which I really like, as well as The Silence of the Lambs. Aside from that, nothing in the genre. And yes, I do consider Silence of the Lambs horror. I also know him from A Time to Kill, 8mm, X-Men The Last Stand, Silkwood, Bushwhacked, Accepted, and Red Dragon are all films that he's been in that I have seen. Alright, so for this movie that I watched as my second featured review, I actually have a very special guest here. Somebody you've heard the name quite a few times on the podcast, and it took me a little bit of convincing, but she finally said this would be a movie she'd be willing to talk to. So... I have with me my wonderful girlfriend of Jamie. Would you like to say hello? Hello. Good to be here. (laughs) Perfect. Now, this is a movie that you really didn't have any idea of what it was, and I'll be honest, I didn't either. But when I saw that the Gateway Film Center was showing this and kind of thought I would read the synopsis to see what you thought, you were in on it. But we did have a kind of interesting situation that fairly early on you seemed very kind of hesitant and very nervous about what we were watching. Uh, do you want to delve into any of that? Well, I mean, being a female in 2020 is kind of a interesting place to be at. So some of the footage would hit a little close to home for being a little bit scared of being out in public sometimes at night, traveling alone, things like that. So I was caught off a little bit on that, but because I didn't pay attention to when you read me what the movie was about. So... I, it was a great movie. So, I mean, I will say it's a little tricky of a subject just because the synopsis does give you a little bit of that, but I didn't necessarily know how far they were going to lean in on, you know, kind of those type of elements with her getting kidnapped. Because I do know at one point, like, I had leaned over to you and said how it was very similar to, like, what Ted Bundy used to do where to disarm women, he would put himself in a cast or, like, a sling or anything because when you see somebody hurt like that and they're asking for your help, you don't necessarily think this person's going to be... You kind of look at the good in people until you've been kind of jaded. Well, yeah, she felt bad for this guy. She felt like she was a bitch because she wasn't going to help him. She, You could see that she felt conflicted. Right. And that comes up multiple times. You always want to believe the best in people. Yeah. And even she said that on the phone at one point in time. And I'm very similar to that. So it kind of, you get into some tricky situations. Yeah, and I mean, kind of going from there is one of the things that I know 
after you said you wanted to do this, I kind of tempered talking about the movie so that way we wouldn't lose any sort of conversation to do it on here. But one of the big things for this movie that struck me is that outside of moving without telling her family that she was going to do it, she makes a lot of the right decisions that you would do in life. And it's terrifying because she keeps making, like, when he's in the sling and he's got his car, car in the middle of the road, she doesn't stop really for him. Like, she stops to an extent because she can't get around him, but she doesn't get out. She doesn't help him. She's willing to call help or, like, to go ahead and send somebody back for him. And despite what he's trying to do, she does the right thing and leaves, yet she still ends up in the situation that she does, you know, about the midway point of the movie. Yeah, she has done or did everything my mom taught me to do, except for with the car keys. She loses them in her purse several times, and I was Max. I always taught to carry them between my knuckles. Yeah. But it's one where nowadays we have cars that automatically lock when, unlock when you're so close, so mm -hmm. that was something that was frustrating to me, but she did all the right choices. She was smart. She was intuitive. She never really let her guard down. So that was badass of her. And I mean, it's kind of something that, as a male, you don't really think about some of the things that you as a woman would have to do in order to kind of avoid these situations. I mean, as guys, like, I mean, I'll admit, when I was in college, I lived in a kind of rougher neighborhood. So when I'm walking home from the bar drunk, I would tend to do the same thing with the car keys when I went through some of the neighborhoods that I had to walk through. But, like, that's just me being like, okay, if somebody jumps me, I have to be ready to do something because, I mean, I'm not the biggest guy. I mean, even back then, I mean, I was a little bit heftier, but it's just those things, like, that she does. I mean, even when she's at the kind of rest area, I feel like she parks next to a light that is, you know, one of the parking lights that you'd get inside, like, the area. So, I mean, she even does that correctly. And, I mean, there's actually a very... One of my favorite scenes is the very long take that they do where they keep changing the depth of focus where we see her talking to her mother when she had been avoiding her all day and then we can see like the one truck driver in the background as he's going to the bathroom, going back to his truck and then we see the one guy who's looking at his map and then we lose focus of her but then we go back to it. And I think they're kind of playing with the trope there where you're expecting the man that we see in this movie who is perpetrating everything to kind of be end up there. And I kind of like how they're trying to mess with you a little bit and play with the beats on it while that's not actually what's going to end up happening there. And I mean, she even does the right thing when he does pull in as she walks back to her car and then flees immediately. And I mean, obviously there's a tense scene where the van stops her, which I'm not even necessarily sure what he was doing there that late at night, but that is something that does pop up there. I mean, I think as a female... Nowadays, or when you're traveling, because I've traveled across states by myself, and whenever you go to a rest stop, it's more just being more aware of what's around you, who's around you, where you park, how long you're there. I never want to be the only person at a rest stop, but I'm not going to trust the car next to me necessarily, because who knows their motives for anything. But that was a great scene, because you can tell she was not quite paying attention but was well enough aware and she was talking to her mom which she didn't want to be doing yeah. but she at least was checking in and just kind of taking a break but yeah. that scene changes quite quickly right when he pulls up and then she leaves and did you catch when he comes up and he's like hey you almost ran me over going to the bathroom so he's trying to get attention yeah from other people to stop her mm -hmm. and he does that multiple times throughout the movie they play on the male-female role where yeah. you got to stop who's wrong and sometimes it's her. Well, yeah, and even going from that is that 
I necessarily didn't even think about the fact that he was kind of creating a scene, but he does try to paint her as the villain there and that he's the victim because he said that she almost ran him over when he's been creepily following her now for a day and a half. Well, the way I took that was the other people don't know. Exactly. So he's going to be over there yelling, you almost did this, and... If a car almost hits a pedestrian, other people are going to usually favor yeah. the pedestrian. So he was hoping to get her in trouble. Right. But luckily she got around the other van. Yeah. I mean, because that, that was where I started to get a little bit more tense with with that whole thing playing out there. Just because it is very kind of... I mean, I've walked across a parking lot where I'm not necessarily... Where somebody almost kind of gets a little bit close to me... I mean, I don't know if I've ever decided to go chase the person down. I would never. And it's not also the same thing when he is creepily talking to her earlier in the movie where he knocks on her window when she's getting ready to leave in the morning from her hotel room, which is another thing that's kind of just very creepy. And you can tell this is one of those things where the sum of the parts make it different when you see the individual things because any of the times that he's done things... There's a perfectly logical explanation, but it's as you start to put them together that you realize there is something off about this guy, and that he might not always have, he might not have the best intentions for what's going to happen here. Right. I'm sure she's thinking, I'm crazy. He's not actually doing yeah. this. He's not actually following me. How can he still be here? But she's obviously unnerved by it. Yeah. And things like that happen. There are coincidences, and you're just like, okay, I am crazy today, but I think that's that intuition that sometimes pops up every now and then. And I think the movie does a good job playing with that, because, I mean, even at the rest area scene is when a van rolls up on her very fast, so she calls the police, which, another thing that she did right, where she's trying to get their help, and then it ends up being that it's just a van who's driving like an asshole on these back roads late at night where it's pitch black and everything. And I kind of like how that plays up there, because you're like, oh shit, he caught up to her quickly. But then that's not what happens, but then there's obviously the next scene, which causes her to crash. And then where he ends up catching up with her. Because, I mean, not really a spoiler to this movie is that she does have a run-in with a guy who's actually a kidnapper, serial killer type person. And he has done all these things and he set up different traps for her. But she keeps outsmarting him until he finally got to the chance where he does slightly puncture her tire. But it takes it driving on it for it to actually fully deflate before she becomes captured. Now, one of the things I kind of wanted to is... I don't know if you kind of noted this, but this movie kind of feels like... I know I said something to you when we were leaving about there's some tired tropes that you see a lot in movies. But I find it interesting with this one is that it feels like two different movies that they combine together. Is that we have a road horror type movie with... I'm pretty sure you've never seen Duel, which is Steven, Phil, Steven Spielberg's TV movie that he made. is a horror movie where a guy ends up upsetting a truck driver. And the truck driver follows him for days on end, just messing with him. Because he's in, like, a station wagon. But another movie I kind of started to get a little bit of feeling with is a lot like Joyride. Ah, candy cane. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But I was going to say is that Duel, you never get to meet the driver. So, like, that one is you just have a menacing giant truck that almost that kind of feels a little bit more like Jeepers Creepers in the beginning where you don't get to meet him at first. But he has an evil-looking vehicle where Joyride actually gives us personality to the villain, and I think this one does an excellent job because, like I said, they've kind of rolled in a lot of stereotypical serial killer things that we know from, like, the BTK killer, from, like, Ted Bundy and everything, but I think the performance that the guy does here is really good in creating a character that, at first, you don't know about, and then you just slowly despise the more and more that you see that he is kind of a piece-of-shit person. Yes. 
But then the other part of it is that it also kind of feels like a Lost in the Woods. I don't want to say necessarily a slasher film, but it actually plays more like a rape revenge film if you take out the rape, which I enjoy the rape revenge film, but not having that in a way where I don't like necessarily see that these people go through things, but I do like seeing people go through a certain traumatic event in their life and that they're going to change to fight back. Because as we see in this movie, our main character of Jessica is a broken woman in that her husband has passed away and she's leaving her town because she's so distraught over what happened that she wants to move on. So I don't know what you felt about like kind of the more revenge aspects and the kind of cat and mouse that they play throughout the woods. I mean, I thought this movie was, or film if you will, was pretty good about reeling you in mm-hmm. and getting you really tense, and then it would give you a pause so you yeah. were able to breathe, but then it jumps right back in, so it caught my attention the whole time, which as you know, when we watch movies, I either fall asleep or <laughs> I'm talking the whole time. This one I was invested in throughout the whole thing, so he definitely does play that cat and mouse kind of aspect with yeah. her, where she gets away. But you can see her development of her fear with people. She's not sure who to trust. She's not sure if other people are on his team. And she definitely outsmarts him, even though she does things that are right, but still it's terrifying. Um, I think at one point in time she felt a little remorse for him, or I don't know if that's the right word, but when he's talking to people on the phone, she gets a sense that he is a normal person, minus this side of him. So I think that stops her for just a second, Mm -hmm. which I feel like people play off that a whole lot more. You feel bad for your killer, stalker, kidnapper, whoever. But, I mean, she was a badass, and so I thought that was awesome. Yeah, it's actually an interesting thing there is, without going into necessarily spoilers, we do, as you said, get to hear him talking on the phone to his family, which I don't feel like that's necessarily a big spoiler, especially that's why I kind of feel like this correlates back to like the BTK killer who if you don't really know about much about Dennis Radar is that he was a family man he was you know married had kids and everything like that was a deacon in the church and everything like that so when it actually turned out to be that he was this serial killer who was pretty much like torturing women and everything in this secret room that he had it was quite shocking to all these people that this guy that they knew for so long and I mean another movie that we kind of watched that played into this is the one based on the Stephen King novel or short story of A Good Marriage, where that one... (laughs) But that one's also more loosely based where Stephen King decided to do one around a killer like the BTK, where his wife had known that he would go on these business trips and then when he would come home, they would go on normal things, but then she ends up finding he has a box full of memorabilia that he has stolen from the women. Like, he would keep... I know he kept their IDs, but he'd also keep something else that he would take off of them. So it's just interesting that they do kind of humanize the villain here. But for me, I never got to the point where I was like, I feel bad for this guy. Because most of the thing I got from there is like, I want this guy to be ruined and to be killed in the end. Or at least, you know, stopped where he can't do these type of things. Because I don't want him to go back to his family and allow us to kind of play out where he can keep living out his fantasies of what he's doing with these people. Right. He even alludes to the fact that she isn't the first one. Yep. He says, he's like, oh, you think you're the only one that said that before? So you know that this is a normal thing. And when he talks on the phone with his wife, he talks about how beautiful it is there and that mm-hmm. they need to come up here for a vacation. I think he mentions an ocean view, which in the woods, you definitely don't have that. Right. So 
I thought that was, it's just one to add another element before because it's not like this guy has gone off the deep end and this is a spur of the moment decision. It's very meticulously planned and he has a method and he does things a certain way. So you get the sense that he's more of a serial yeah. kidnapper killer than just first time. So. Right. Um, before we kind of got into some of the things that I, I didn't really like about the movie, is there any other um, likes that you wanted to kind of go into before we moved on to kind of dislikes? I like that there wasn't that many characters in yeah. this. You really got to know Jessica and like her, you got a sense that she didn't get along with her mom. She mm -hmm. loved her dad, but there's some trying times. Yeah. And then it was mainly her and then the killer, which I don't even know his name. I don't think it was mentioned at all. It's actually funny is when I was writing like the written review, he's credited as man. Okay. He doesn't actually... I think there might have been... The He's wife like, says it at the end. I don't recall what name they no gave idea. him. But yes, the, he does have a name, but they don't focus on it, which is another interesting thing because you're not humanizing him by giving him a name that we remember. Because I know, like, the guy we end up meeting later in the movie is Robert, and we only oh, meet him yeah. for a small stretch. Yes. And then we have Jessica, which those names stick with us because we look at them as people. Right, and those are the only three characters in the whole movie, so I like that it was yep. mainly between the two of them. And when you see him start to lose control when she escapes, you can see the different tactics he uses. Mm -hmm. He tries to um, bribe her to come out of hiding, and then yep. he tries to attack her, and then you can tell that he's using her guilt and shame that she feels yes. against her. So I hated it but totally thought it fit with the movie and what somebody would do when they're trying to just... Kind of goad you out yeah. of... Yeah. Yeah. It almost is interesting, kind of, as you were saying this, this kind of clicked for me, is it almost feels to me as well that it's kind of like going through your stages of acceptance of something, not necessarily always grief, but like, for his case, it's kind of frustration, mm -hmm. is that, I mean looking at somebody who's trying to plead with a child is that at first you might try to like bribe them with like hey, if you come out, like, we'll do this. And if it doesn't work, like, sometimes you get to the point where you just blow up at them and stuff like that. So yeah. you're kind of seeing how you would handle somebody. I mean, I know with killers, like, sometimes their mentality isn't necessarily as normal as what we would do for somebody. So he almost kind of, as it's a, as a prey, so, I mean, you could almost see it as, like, an animal going after something they think is weaker than them. And, I mean, a lot of the things he's doing to her, I think, ends up helping build up the character that we need for the end right. is that she kind of gets to have enough of it. Right, because she's going through the stages of fear to yep. that fight or flight. And yep. At first it was flight, and now she's like, I can't do anything else. I, it's either me or him that's going to die. So right. it was very cool to see how um, she like phases into that, because she is a broken woman. Yep. I mean, this is probably going to further break her if you're looking at her long term. Yep. That's why I said at the end, I want a happy ever after for her, <laughs> because <laughs> she, you just... You want her so badly to win and right. to have better than what she's been going through. Yeah. I'll say the last good thing that I kind of was wanting to say as we started talking about it made me think about is that I love contained horror movies. And that's a lot of what you get with like the smaller cast. Now this one we obviously have this wide open forest, but it still feels contained because she's so isolated out in the middle of this where like... I mean, they're in the Oregon woods. Like, you don't know how far these woods go on. And, I mean, they established that early on with the aerial shots, is that these woods go on for miles and miles and miles. Probably not right now, which is an unfortunate thing to say with the wildfires going on out there. But it's terrifying, though, for me as somebody who, I mean, I've grown up in the country where we did have woods. Nothing nearly as long or as wide as this where, like, if I walk in one direction for 
an hour, I'm probably in somebody's backyard by the time I'm done walking. So it's nothing like that. Like, I mean, I could literally get through most of them in a short amount of time. But that's where I kind of wanted to say, though, is it still has that contained feel despite how large of an area they have to work with still. Well, yeah, because he always finds her. I don't know how. <laughs> like, that's the worst luck ever. Yeah. And actually, that kind of will parlay into my some of my dislikes is one of them is I do feel like, because there's a point where there is a river that gets involved in things. I do feel like it is a little bit convenient at times that they end up running into each other as they do as quickly. I'm willing to suspend some of this disbelief due to it being movie logic because, I mean, you can't have him searching the woods for six hours trying to find her because I had a thought going through my head that if she could just get even like a mile between them, I think she would get away or at least be lost long enough where they would go in different directions just because it would be so hard to find each other. So I don't know if you thought anything like... I don't know if that was an issue that you had possibly with it or if it is just something that kind of struck me. That annoyed me as well, but at that point in time, I just wanted an end, so it was fine <laughs> that they ran into each other. I didn't like all the dumb luck that she has. Okay. Um, she seems like she gets in her way half the time, yeah. but at the same time, what else are you going to do? You're fighting for your life, so you have to make choices. Yeah. I could see some of it just because of, especially with one thing that happens with a telephone, is that the adrenaline that you have going through you and you don't necessarily know what's about to happen, that I could see making some mistakes, but... Well, yeah. I mean, I would, if that was me in the situation, yeah. I would probably be running around screaming and I wouldn't <laughs> help myself at all. So right. I can't fault her for that. It was just one where, I, that's the part that just frustrated me. She didn't do anything wrong. Like we said, she did everything right, but it was just the dumb luck of hitting with the stick and then breaks the phone and then everything like that. It was just, just frustrating to watch because yeah. I wanted her to win so badly. Right. Another thing that I didn't like was when she was calling for 911 and she had the GPS on her phone, she kept screaming she didn't know where she was. And I wanted to just say, look at your GPS, <laughs> the road name's on there. So that was the one thing that just frustrated yeah. me. But I mean, as working in the hospital, when bad things happen, people panic. Oh yeah. And the dumbest things are like, if you would just take one second to breathe, you, mm -hmm. the answer's right in front of you. Again, not been in her exact situation, but just that was one thing. I just She was so calm and collected most of the time, and that was the one time where I was like, that's when you needed to actually look at your surroundings yeah. and say, I'm on Highway 95. Well, I mean, I know a lot of times, too, having especially just came back from a trip where we were on major highways, I kind of took it as she was trying to find a mile marker, but I do agree with you, though. She could at least say what direction she's going in and what road. For those of us who are directionally challenged, that might be harder. But I always know if I have a GPS, it at least will tell you. That's that's what I was kind of getting yeah. at, is that the GPS will tell you. Because, I mean, once I'm driving, I mean, especially at night, because when she was trying to do that, it was pitch black. And it was winding wood, so. So it would be difficult even for, I mean, I'm not the greatest at necessarily being like, all right, look outside right now, like we're facing north. Like, it would be one of those things where I'd have to, exactly what you were saying is, at night I couldn't do it, but the GPS I think would at least kind of help you. I'm willing to suspend some of that just because fluster, because I mean, I know my job isn't even that high stress, but like, I freak out and make a wrong sentence in an email or something along those lines just because I'm not thinking. Right, that was just the one part. She makes so many other things I didn't even notice mm -hmm. and she was able to figure it out with that one she probably is also the most scared yeah. at that point in time with the unknowing but that was just my thing yeah I can if see I that. had to pick one thing yeah that would be it 
I'll say the one thing that really struck me is that the movie kind of feels like this guy knew a lot about her. Yes. And I, if they're trying to actually play up that's the case, I don't like it because what are the odds they would run into each other like that where they did? Now, I almost think, as I've been kind of reflecting on it, is that once he kidnaps her, I feel like he does go through her things and figure stuff out because he doesn't know everything. We got the iPad from her, so he knew right. that she had a significant other, and then he thought that the significant other had left her because right. she wasn't wearing her exactly. wedding ring, and so he doesn't realize that. Okay. See, that's kind of... See, now that's not necessarily a negative for me because that's kind of where I thought they were going, but I wasn't 100% sure just because the way they present that scene, which is very harrowing and very, like stressful and just heartbreaking but i was like do these people were like how would he really know this but i can see that i feel like it was random selection yeah as for when sure. he picked her and then probably found her license plate i mean yep. i feel like somebody like him isn't stupid it's right. not his first time so exactly has a method to everything so i think it was random selection that mm. she was the person and then she just probably fit all his check boxes yeah. traveling alone Looks like, I mean, she has a U-Haul attached to her, so she's traveling for oh, a yeah, time. He does a really good job at probing questions without it. Like, we know they're probing questions. She might not necessarily because she's just trying to get him to go away, but, I mean, he's asking, do you come here often? Like, asking pretty much, like, that's a roundabout way to be like, do you have family in the area? Because yeah. an easy target is, I mean, there's a lot of talk about there's serial killers that are working along these trans... Uh, highways because they can go for long stretches and they can kill somebody in one state dump their body somewhere else they might never be found that they are missing because of how far there are distances and everything like that and they can get away with it because you don't know who the person did because they're long gone by the time somebody discovers it so i almost feel like they're playing up that a little bit with how he's not from this area that he's hunting in but he also has ways of figuring out that the people he is hunting aren't from that area either, so he can get away with it. Because, I mean, the, the best victim is one that nobody's looking for. Right. And especially if she's estranged from her parents, they might think she's taking more time to get away. Right. I mean, she's leaving for a reason, so... Yeah. She didn't even tell him that she moved away when she did, so... Exactly. Now, it does seem that she might have brought it up, because I know her father said that... They knew she was moving. Yeah. She just didn't tell him when. When. So it does seem like they were expecting her... They to, wanted to help her move. Yeah. So. And I think they, and I mean, I get where she's coming from, and she wants to definitely move out as soon as possible just because she needs a new fresh start, which another thing to show, she has strength hidden in her. Because, yeah. I mean, if you're willing just to pack up your whole life and just hit the road, like, that's not something you do just lightly. Like, you do have to have something behind it to do it. So I do like to see that we get from early on that there is that strength there. Right, that's really my only kind of negative that I had against the movie. And, I mean, obviously that's not even necessarily one, because I do agree with the one you had brought up as well. Is like, I think this is a very well done movie. I mean, I thought it was shot beautifully. Like, I'm a sucker for the changing of focuses. And I really like things that are in the background that don't necessarily even have to do with anything. But, I mean, it terrifies me. That's what, I mean, what scares me about like, the grudge movies is when there's a ghost in the background and they don't notice it. So if you can do stuff with that where the characters don't see it, you really kind of creep me out. And, I mean, like I said, we've talked about a lot of the things that women have to be kind of terrified of and how she's doing the right things. 
and it still gets her in this harrowing situation. I love hate this movie Fair. for the same reasons. I mean, she I said before she's a badass and has to fight, but I hate that she's a badass and has to fight. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I think I had all the range of emotions mm -hmm. in the theater and at one point in time I was like I it's too hits too close to home and yeah. I wanted to walk out but then I had to know that she made it out yeah unfortunately we see a lot of these shows where they don't make it out so yeah I hate love this movie I thought it was well done as well like I was on the edge of my seat yeah. most of the time <laughs> well, that's good I mean I'm glad that it doesn't didn't ruin your whole experience there and that you would hate it because you know I understand I'm going to show you some movies that you're not going to be the biggest fan of. A lot of. of movies that I'm not the biggest fan of. <laughs> but I mean, like, especially somebody like me, I will delve into a lot of these type of movies because this one had no idea what it was, and I end up really liking it. I don't love it. Like, I'll get into my rating here in a minute, but it's definitely one that I would rewatch this one at some point. Maybe not close together because I don't feel like there's a lot of things that you kind of miss or like deeper story behind it. But I think there's a lot of cultural relevance and things that we see in this country. I mean, not just now, but in the past. And I mean, as of right now, they're not necessarily fixed in the future either. So, I mean, I do think that it works very well for what they're trying to do here. And that's probably the reason why I wouldn't watch, wouldn't watch it again. Yeah. Is because it hits too close to home and we see this, it's, happens every day or yeah. we hear about it and the podcast I'm listening to now talks a lot about these types of things so mm -hmm. for me I'm happy to maybe happy is not the right word I'm glad I went and saw it yeah. especially it did teach me the lesson I need to listen to you when you read me the movie synopsis <laughs> <laughs> so that way I'm not blindsided I do remember you just saying is this woman something 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 they're in a wood something something I was yeah. like oh, okay try <laughs> ghosts no no ghosts <laughs> Well, um, did you want me to give my rating first, or did you want, as my guest, to go ahead and do it first? Like, it's, uh... I didn't know I had to do a rating. <laughs> this was, uh, I don't know what to rate it on. I usually do from a scale of 1 to 10. Okay. With 10 way. being the highest, so... Overall? Yes. Yeah. I'm gonna go with a 7. Okay. 1, because 7's my favorite number, <laughs> so that fits, um... I don't think it would be my all-time favorite movie just because I wouldn't want to watch it again. You yeah. know the movies that you see and you want to watch it because you think you missed something. Yeah. I think I got everything I needed to get. Um, maybe a seven and a half, eight because I was on the edge yeah. of my seat a lot of the time. It did strike emotion for me mm -hmm. where I was happy for her and like, yeah, she's awesome. And then I was scared. Yeah. Um, but again, I probably would never want to watch it again because it did scare me scare me because yeah. it hit close to home so i'm gonna go on a sliding scale of seven to eight okay well it's kind of funny because without you even knowing because we have not discussed this at all i was kind of hovering between a 7.58 <laughs> now obviously as somebody who watches everything with a critical eye i had some slight issues here and there with things like some of the concepts things i've seen before i like that they do something different by combining multiple types of movies here because it starts out road horror and then you kind of get like the revenge killer trying to chase somebody in the woods type thing so i actually came in with a 7.5 is the rating that i settled on and everything at this time i don't know if it'll ever go higher like i think it's above average but like i said there's not a lot of re like replay value there and i mean what we've talked about a lot i tend to have movies that 
if you're doing more of like an allegory or something like that, I tend to rate it higher because that fascinates me if you can incorporate that. I think the social relevance, I can't go anything below that rating just because it is relevant and it is terrifying in its own way. And I think that it's, it's just a well-made movie where I can't go, I can't hate the movie ever for, you know, being something like that. If it had a little bit more of something that necessarily kind of stands out more than other ones, I could possibly go higher. But I think that's why I would come in at the rating that I have at this time. I think that's fair. Um, was there anything else you wanted to kind of say before we kind of close out this little segment together? No. Would you ever come back and record with me again? Oh, gosh. I think I have to. <laughs> no, this was fun. I was a little nervous, and I hate the sound of my voice, so I'm glad I don't have to edit it. <laughs> but, no, on a vacation day, I might as well hang out with you and do something you like to do. Perfect. Oh, I do appreciate it. Can't wait for paybacks. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Alright, so what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. There's a possibility There's a possibility
Welcome back. And just to close everything out here, I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you enjoyed hearing Jamie on this episode and want to hear more of her, please send me something through there or any of the venues that I will say here in just a second, just so that way we can get her back on here as soon as possible. And then if you'd like to read any of the reviews that are on this episode or any of the past reviews that I've done, you can read the written version at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. And I'm also going to be starting doing more stuff for the Dark Discussions Network's website, so you can also catch some of those over there, and I will you know, designate which ones you can find that way. On Facebook, if you'd like to add me on there, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, where I will post all the reviews on there as well. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And if you'd like to add the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then if you'd like to download the FlickChat app, you can download that on iOS or Android. And my join code, once you have that, is Journey with a Cinephile. And then the last thing I would ask is whatever podcatching device you are listening to me on, if you haven't already, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode that I put out. And then if you could also rate and review on there, I would also appreciate that just so I can get an idea of anything that I'm doing that you do like or anything that I'm doing that you don't like. Also, if you'd like to send any feedback, you can also send me that through an email, and that would be greatly appreciated just because I would like to try to make this the you know best possible show that I can out there. And then on top of that, uh, next episode is going to be another Journey Through the Aughts, which will be, I believe, 21. And then I have a screener that I'm going to be watching that came from Dark Coast, and that is going to be Camp Twilight, I believe is the name of that movie. I was trying to figure out a movie that I was going to pair up with it, and I believe that there is a version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart that came out in 1960, so I will be watching both of those for the next episode, and I'll be trying to get as many you know mini-reviews in as I can. But that is all I really wanted to kind of go over here before closing out the show. I want to thank you for coming on this journey once again. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it, and I hope you have a great time as well. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off. Oh no, bro, come. <laughs>